Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's Dialogue De Novo. I, of course, am Jake Rome. Please remember to like this show on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. My guests today are Professor Kate Mitchell and Kara Simon, and they joined the show to discuss the Health Justice Project here at Loyola University of Chicago School of Law and the ways in which we can reconceptualize the interaction of law with healthcare and poverty, and potentially new vantage points from which we can view fixes for these issues. It was an excellent conversation and one that you will enjoy quite a bit. So, without any further ado, please give it up for the great and powerful Kate Mitchell and Kara Simon. Welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. I'm sitting here today with Professor Kate Mitchell and Kara Simon, and we are going to talk about their involvement in the Health Justice Project and the ways in which law and healthcare interact and ways we can reconceptualize what it means to be involved in the industry of healthcare. Professor Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And Kara. <laughs> Thanks. So just for my own edification and for that of the listeners, why don't we start with just a quick rundown of what the Health Justice Project is and what its mission statement is and when it was uh, developed at Loyola University. So the Health Justice Project is a clinic, one of the, the clinics at the law school. It's a medical legal partnership clinic. So we partner with Erie Family Health Centers, which is a large federally qualified health system in Chicago. It serves the west side and the north side of Chicago and some of the northern suburbs. They see about 70,000 low-income patients every year in a wide variety of services from you know, pediatric care to OBGYN care to elder law care. They also have behavioral health services at their clinics. And all of our patient, all of our clients are their patients. Mm-hmm. And we also partner with LAF, which is the largest provider of civil legal services for people in poverty in the Cook County area. And so we have two legal partners and one medical partner. So LAF and the Health Justice Project Clinic at Loyola, we provide services to address what we call the health-harming legal needs of Erie's patients. Mm -hmm. So we know from decades of research that health is, is impacted significantly by social determinants, which can include issues related to community, poverty, housing, education, income, immigration, safety, and so on. And so many of those issues have legal legal remedies or correlate with legal issues. So our project addresses those legal issues with the hope and purpose of improving the health and well-being of Erie's patients through our services. So what are, what are the nature of the, the legal remedies and the legal issues? I mean, how do you get in there? What are the nuts and bolts of what you can do to help these clients and patients? So I guess maybe it makes sense to give you an overview of the types of cases that we're currently handling in the clinic. Sure. So we're doing um, housing conditions cases, so low-income families renting apartments that are substandard, so there may be roaches, mice, mold, lead paint. The children are being exposed to lead paint in their home. We also do public benefits cases to help focus on income stability for low-income families. So if a family has um, been denied food stamps 
or cash assistance or Medicaid benefits through um, the Illinois Department of Health and Human Services, we will help with appeals or help with applications to help families maintain that stability of income and access to health care. We also do some family law cases. So we're doing a divorce case um, for a woman who is a survivor of domestic violence. And we know that safety and stability um, improves health and well-being for her and her child. We also um, are doing some guardianship cases on behalf of patients at Erie who are um, be- turning, turning 18, becoming adults, but they have significant developmental um, disabilities or delays, and so they're not able to communicate and take care of themselves and um, take care of their finances and make health care decisions, so we're filing some guardianships for their, on, on their behalf for their parents. Um, and we are... What else are we working on? Our Medicaid appeals. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So um, we have a few clients at the clinic right now that have either been denied Medicaid outright or what's been going on in the Chicago area recently in Illinois as a whole is that Medicaid has just flat out not been responding to applications. And so what that culminates in is a bunch of de facto denials and no one is getting services even though they haven't gotten these denials so they really haven't gotten any of their due process rights. And there have been cases and there are current cases going through the courts now to decide how we remedy the situation but it's ongoing and we do have clients that are still waiting for even a decision on their application even when it's been months and months or years and years since they incurred these large expenses that they have as a burden on their back. And that's another way that these things that you don't necessarily think of as health and health harming are actually legal needs. So do you know what the antecedents of that are? Why, why is it that the state of Illinois is just not even responding to these applications? Do we know or do we have any inclinations? Well, there, there are a few different theories. Um, Illinois recently converted to a new computer system to process applications um, for public benefits. So there may be issues with that implementation. And there are also just um, lots of delays because there are so many applications for Medicaid. And so caseworkers are overburdened and the system is overburdened and they're really behind in processing them, months behind in processing them. So turning back to what you're talking about uh, with the types of cases that you handle, it seems like the Health Justice Project and your clinic takes a very expansive approach and definition of what it means to provide health care on the legal side of that. Mm-hmm. And that relates well to an, ar- an article that you sent me prior to this interview about the upstream approach, and that seems to really inform the practice that you guys engage in. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and, and why it is that that uh, approach to medicine really appeals to you? Sure. So I started working in medical legal partnerships in 2008. And within a few years of beginning, I came across this book called The Upstream Doctors by Dr. Rishi Manchanda. And I found the book to be really transforming. It talks about um, really the public health approach of being upstream and focus. And he talks about doctors transforming the way that they provide care to patients using this upstream approach by not just looking at the patient and the, you know, physically present obvious issues that the patient comes to you in the clinic with, 
but to kind of trace those symptoms to the source of the problem and to address the source of the problem. So he he gave it gives an example in his book about a woman who had chronic headaches and was constantly seeking medical care and going to emergency rooms for her headaches. And then he saw her and became curious about what was the root cause of the headache. So he had someone go to her home and do a home inspection and learn that there was mold in the home. And he, he connected the headaches to sinus issues caused by the mold. And also she had a child in the home with severe asthma, which was probably already also linked to the mold. So he took that kind of upstream approach to try to find the root source of the health issue. Um, and he, he gives some other examples of doctors doing like policy work and other, other work as upstream providers. But this, this really resonated with me as a poverty lawyer because poverty lawyers or you know, people who provide civil legal services for people in poverty, you know, we, we are also doing the same thing. We're triaging people who come to us with these emergency legal problems. Um, we're you know, fighting an eviction to try to help them stay in their home. We're trying to get them disability benefits or accommodations, but we're not really necessarily always going to the root source of the problem. And so the book really resonated with me when I read it because I've always been really interested in policy work, and it kind of gave me a lens through which um, to look differently at my work. Um, And there are a couple different components to it. One is, you know, you can go upstream a little bit and, and focus on more holistic care, which he talks about in his book, and he talks about medical legal partnerships being part of that. So you're collaborating with other disciplines to have a greater impact on um, on your patient or your client. And we engage in holistic care in our in our clinic because many of our clients have multiple legal issues. So we may be representing someone with their disability benefits case, but also they have a housing issue, or maybe another issue comes up with like Medicaid um, or food stamps. And so we try to take a really broad approach um, because I found in my practice over the years, if you just address the one discrete legal issue, it's really just a Band-Aid and you're Mm -hmm. not changing the circumstances or the life of your client. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's part of what we do. The other part of of what we do is we teach our students in our clinic to really think about upstream strategies and approaches to legal issues. So um, to give kind of some... um, framework of what that might look like. So typically, if you get a case, I'll go to a Medicaid appeal, because we were talking about that a little bit earlier. You know, you would look at a Medicaid appeal, and you would investigate, you know, what the timelines are, what happened with your client, were they eligible, you'd file an administrative appeal, you'd go to the administrative appeal, you'd put on your case, you know, you'd hopefully win. If not, you'd, you'd appeal to the next level. So that, you know, that's like the traditional lawyering approach. The upstream, though, approach would be to, to go up and find what, what was the source of the problem for the Medicaid denial or the delay and to address that problem. So um, another case that, that Kara worked on in collaboration with the Shriver Center and Lurie Children's Hospital involved a denial for a young child um, for some medication for spinal muscular atrophy. And she was denied based on an Illinois policy that really limits when Medicaid will cover this new drug called Spinraza. So, so the traditional approach is to go to the appeal to prove that the child needs the medication and to try to get the hearing officer to say yes, 
you know, you've put on enough evidence to show that this particular child needs this medication. But the upstream approach is to identify that the state policy is the problem mm -hmm. and then to address the policy. <clears throat> Um, and you can keep going upstream to the root of the problem because maybe it was the, you know, a, a problem at the federal level because the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services was issuing inappropriate policies. That's not what happened in this case. I'm just giving an example of that. If you, sure. if you follow the course upstream to the root cause, it might lead you to different investigative strategies, different um, strategies that you're going to engage in in your advocacy, like policy advocacy or impact litigation as opposed to an administrative hearing. So we try to get our students in our clinic to conceptualize the problems that their clients have through this lens so that they can start thinking more broadly. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing poverty law work, I think it's really important that you are looking at these problems more broadly because usually it's not just one person experiencing the problem. It's, a, it's often a systemic problem and if you are able to address that systemic problem you're benefiting everyone who's struggling not just your client you mentioned housing in there and obviously that that relates to the example in, in the upstreamist book of veronica who came in with the headaches but i know that you have done Kara, a lot of work with a client we can use an alias about her housing problems and i would like it if you could discuss those experiences a little bit and yeah, well, sure. how that's affected you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had a client when I first started at the clinic that was experiencing what she described as a rodent infestation. And that was kind of my main goal when I sat down and talked to her in the first place was just kind of figuring out how this occurred, what she's been doing to try to remedy it, what the landlord's been doing, etc. But as we dove deeper into the situation, we realized not only was she had having mice in her apartment, she had enormous amounts of flooding and burst pipes. And um, we stepped in and got to know the landlord and realized that not only was this just a simple housing conditions case, but this was kind of like a power dynamic problem where the landlord had kind of decided that they could do their job by... I don't know, sweeping problems under the rug or blaming my client and the other tenants for the problems rather than remedy the situation. And so even more upstream, we got involved with the organization who funds all the housing called Mercy Housing. And we brought to their attention not only that my client was having problems with the mice and the plumbing, but that the landlord was not remedying any of these situations. And so we were able to remove the landlord from that situation, bring in someone different, and all of a sudden, all of the problems were remedied. And so it really brought to light the fact that the mice in the water, while it was the direct problem, the problem really was the management in the system. And I think being able to kind of shake up that power dynamic because of the unique situation we're in as advocates was really impactful for the entire community where she lives. So... Uh Ms. Mitchell, you spoke about teaching students in the clinic to think broadly about problems and, and thinking about them on a systemic level. And, and Kara, you just brought up the uh, aspect of power dynamics. And it strikes me that part of a national conversation and national debate right now is so centered on these kind of core ideas that there's systemic poverty and people are, are being prevented from entering even through the gates and, and being able to achieve upward mobility and that there are a lot of problems with healthcare right now too. I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on that and 
what you see as the most salient problems that we should be focusing on in our national conversation? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I think that our our national attitudes about people in poverty, like from the you know legislative policy perspective, is really destructive. I mean, all the social services and the support systems that we have set up are set up with like gatekeepers who are determining who is eligible and or worthy of all these different supports. And, and, and the systems are really set up um, as monitoring systems as opposed to supportive systems, which our clients experience as they go into like the welfare office and someone's really rude to them or judgmental or says cruel things or refuses to help solve their problems. When really like that system should actually be set up to support the folks who are supposed to be receiving the benefits, um, and that should be con- you know conveyed in the manner in which case managers work and everyone treats um, folks. But th- so there's a lot of you know judging going on about why people are in poverty and why they need support, as opposed to looking at. You know what services and supports are actually effective and work. We actually know what works and what's effective based on decades of research. We just choose not to do it. And and so that's that's problematic. And there are certainly like elements in there mixed in of, you know, decades of racism and who's worthy and not worthy because of the color of their skin. That's an element, certainly, of how these systems work. Um, but we, you know, we see with all the time, you know, time caps now on cash assistance, which were implemented in the 90s. Now all the new work requirements, you know, we had work requirements for cash assistance, but now we have work requirements and states are, are trying to implement for Medicaid. It's really more about punishing than it is about supporting because we know from research that if we want to help people in poverty work, what actually supports them is like job programs and paying for daycare and paying for education. But that's not what these states are focused on. And so I think this kind of attitude and approach um, to how we, how we support people who are vulnerable in our communities is really destructive. So it, it sounds like there's an attitudinal aspect to it, but you did kind of recite a short list of things that you think are effective, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that there's decades of research supporting mm-hmm. your proposition that these are effective. Mm-hmm. You mentioned jobs program, daycare mm-hmm. assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can you, I guess, expand upon a little bit, like the jobs program? I'm not familiar with mm-hmm. this topic very much, so mm-hmm. I'd like to know how those work and, and uh, where we see the best benefits and, and kind of where we're failing a little bit at the moment. Well, I'll go back a little bit more. I mean, we know that having access to high-quality education is a really huge indicator um, for whether or not someone's going to be able to be economically self-sufficient throughout their life. Um, so, you know, I think we need to go back even, you know, before jobs programs to making sure we're investing appropriately in elementary schools. And in Chicago, there's huge disparities in um, how schools function neighborhood by neighborhood, and a lot of those disparities fall along racial lines once again. And, and so some students um, are benefiting from higher quality education, and therefore they're having better opportunities. So that's certainly part of it. You know, access to post-secondary training programs is really important. Um, access to training programs in general for different, for different careers 
Sometimes job counseling is important. Making sure that folks who are working have access to health care. Mm-hmm. Making mm-hmm. sure that folks who are working have access to childcare. You know, those are all important factors in helping people to become self-sufficient. And then another really big factor is access to affordable housing, affordable, healthy housing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rents are really high in Chicago, and a lot of low-income folks are forced to rent substandard homes because they just can't afford high-quality homes, which also, you know, those substandard homes also happen to usually be in neighborhoods of schools that are not functioning as well and sure. so the cycles just perpetuate <clears throat> sure sure and you know it's so interesting we just um, started reading a book in our class about how the history of our um, system when we provide social services to different people is so different from other countries the book we are reading is called the american Healthcare paradox it's by elizabeth bradley and lauren taylor And so we just read the first two chapters, so I might be a little wrong on this. But the gist is that in Europe and other countries, the social services systems kind of built up on the basis of the fact that everyone is deserving of these systems, and this is for the entire community. This is our baseline. And so there aren't as many checks on who's deserving. You have to convince me why I'm going to help you. It's more like... This is our baseline for the entire community. We have agreed upon these services for everyone. You don't have to prove yourself. But in our country, in the United States, you know, we came over here, there was nothing. And then the first occurrence of social services really being necessary was people being displaced from their homes in large quantities. And so it became more than just a social services problem, but really like a logistics problem that we were willing to solve quickly. But then that builds up to like, okay, we gave you this help because you were in need and you proved you were in need and you proved that your need was affecting me, right? And so that has translated to the present day where we're still saying, you need to show me how your problem is affecting me personally, otherwise I don't care. And that's kind of the poison that's in our political system at this point, is I don't want to pay for these social services because I don't see how it helps me. And I think that's the completely wrong way to think of things because we know that social services help every single person in the community, whether you're directly using them or you're not. And I'll just jump in and add too, I mean, and I think your original question asked about the link to health and and the link to health is that when when folks don't get what they need don't get their basic human needs met they have health problems and that puts a strain on the healthcare system which really isn't effective at addressing social determinants of health so so what we've done as a as a nation is we've poured a lot of money into a healthcare industry that basically just puts band-aids on on folks. Not even that well. (laughs) Right, right, right. And then sends them back to substandard housing Mm -hmm. so they'll just get sick again. Like the, you know, the story in the book that you mentioned earlier, whereas, um, you know, this this book that Kara mentioned is talking about if we look at health care services and social services as one big pot and we think about where it's best to invest and where we'll get the most return on investment, 
it may be that we'll get some more return on investment if we invest more in social services. Yeah, I mean, I'm always persuaded by an efficacy argument or efficiency argument. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I have the inclination that you guys are both advocates of expanding government benefits, or do you see a path forward through private market, or does this really need to come from the top down? I think that the private market does not do a very good job with um, providing services and supports and benefits in a, in a broad scale. That's not to say that there aren't many amazing private um, organizations that um, you know don't give back to their communities and do a lot of good work in their communities, but um, there, there's often like different incentives at play, like profit-related incentives, and we've seen this play out in the Medicaid realm, where we've encouraged privatization of Medicaid, and states have been converting their Medicaid systems to Medicaid managed care systems, where the state contracts with private companies who administer Medicaid for a segment of the Medicaid population in the state. Most of those companies are for-profit companies, and they get a certain um, set amount per consumer that they're covering. So there's a built-in incentive to cover less because then you'll make more money. And so I've seen that conversion happen in a few states that I've worked in, Ohio and Michigan, and it's going on in Illinois too. What, what we've seen, especially with the populations I've worked with, which, which has, has tended to be medically complex, patients and kids, um, co- you know, coverage trends change and, and, and care is not provided and more checks and balances are put in place. There's more questioning of doctors um, and what they're prescribing and it hasn't really proven to be effective or more helpful, supportive of the patients. So I think, you know, I think there are other examples too where we've tried to privatize government um, responsibilities like jails where it's really not worked at all because the incentives are just not um, the same kind of altruistic incentives that I think are more common in government, not always common um, or existing in government, but at least more common in government. So I I think we need to expand our social services um, administered by the federal government particularly. So Medicare for all is, is a pretty popular notion at this point in time especially on the left, do you see that that would be a potential fix for a lot of these problems you're identifying? Or is the elimination of private insurance something we should be very careful or approach with a lot of trepidation? Well, I think, I I mean, I would be a strong proponent of Medicaid for all, actually. I don't know that that's ever going to be a realistic option. I think Medicare for all is a good, um, you know, second, second choice to that. Could you you explain the difference just a little bit? Well, Medicaid covers essentially everything with no co-pays or cost to the the consumer or the patient at all. Whereas Medicare, when you have Medicare, um, you you have to pay for, like, co-pays. And um, sometimes, you you know, lots of folks buy co-insurance to cover those co-pays. They buy prescription coverage, cover prescriptions because those aren't covered. So it's not... Um, a, a comprehensive insurance plan that covers everything, whereas Medicaid does. 
Um, but I think what's probably more realistic for this country is a Medicare for all system where folks can still buy supplemental insurance programs. And hopefully we would continue to provide free supplemental insurance programs to folks who can't pay for it. I would be an advocate of just a pure socialized health system where all health care is just free for everyone who needs it, which I think is more comparable to Medicaid for all. But, um, but it, could look, it could look other ways, too. And I think you have to look at the fact that, like, I do see the value in privatizing some things. I think it works out in some ways. But in terms of offering private insurance along with this sort of government insurance or socialized or however you want to say it, you look at the economics of the thing. And insurance does not work if you do not have a diverse insurance pool. And so what we see happening is that if consumers are able to move out of that pool and go to a private pool, they're the ones who are saying, I don't have these, I don't have horrible health concerns. I'm going to take my money elsewhere. And that money leaves the pool. So you're only left with people who have large amounts of medical needs immediately. Right. And that's depleting. Right. It's a high risk pool and it fundamentally doesn't work. And that's like basic insurance theory, right? And so ideally we would like to give, you'd like to give consumers a choice and an option. And I think that's the rhetoric that's going on. But at the same time, there really is no choice when you're leaving the high risk pool as the only people funding their insurance. So I'm, I'm, I'm always open to new ideas. I'm fairly apprehensive when it comes to the idea of Medicare for all. And a lot of that has to do with just the fact that, I mean, you mentioned that you hope that the people at the helm of government are altruistic, but I mean, we, we don't need to look further than our own backyard here in Chicago to know that that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've brought this up on the program before, and I'll bring it up again. The TIF program mm-hmm. in Chicago, which siphons off money from lower income neighborhoods, that for people that don't know who are listening, they set property taxes at baseline, and then any uh, appreciation above that baseline is then siphoned off, and it's supposed to go back into those communities, building new businesses, which will hopefully stimulate economic activity. And basically, that that's a snowball effect that just builds on itself once you have economic activity. Instead, what happens is that these property taxes, which are supposed to go to Chicago public schools, are funneled up north, usually, and uh, spent in the Loop or on Michigan Avenue, the places that already are the wealthiest parts of the city. So. I mean, and this is troubling because I don't see this topic coming up a lot at the moment in our mayoral election. But, I mean, this, this program has just run rampant, and it's essentially turned into a slush fund for the city. But I, I, I think that fundamentally the, the idea underpinning it that increased economic activity and private businesses are a good way to stimulate a neighborhood that will hopefully lead to a reduction in violence and an increase in education. And then, you know, once those problems are cleared up, you know, more developers will want to come in and build better housing. So that's kind of an upstreamist approach, but you can see the example of how government can just run awry and run roughshod on such a program. How does that factor into this? Because really, if, if, we, if we advocate for a program like Medicaid or Medicare for All, and using your example of you know, how we, we can't have a diverse portfolio of insurance types, essentially we are just leaving it up to a select number of few to do the right thing. And I, I guess, does that, does that play into um, how that would inform like, what you want to do at all? I mean, Well, I mean, 
obviously there is corruption and mismanagement in government. Similarly, we have corruption and mismanagement in private industry. So I, so I, you know, that that's always a risk. I, I think, you know, I, I think federal government programs and more um, highly um, involved federal monitoring of programs can help to alleviate some of that. Not that there aren't problems in the federal government. Obviously there are. Um, and depending on who, who is put in charge of agencies, you know, they may, they may or may not um, care, you know, what's happening, or they may not do a good job of monitoring programs, which is what we're seeing right now through the Department of Health, um, um, Health Services and Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services. They were, they were doing, exerting a lot more scrutiny under the prior administration over states administering Medicaid and Medicare than they are now. But I think, um, you know, if you leave it up to local governments to invest in, in things like, you know, basic human needs like Medicare, Medicaid, health insurance, cash assistance, food assistance, I think there, there will be a lot of disparities from, you know, different states and different communities. So, so that's why I'm a proponent of a federal system for all that. But... In terms of you know opportunities for corruption, obviously that that's that's there. So I think that's why it's important to have monitors and have a system where there are complaint systems and there's scrutiny and probably also heightened rights uh, among consumers and community members to hold programs accountable or you know the the right to to sue programs right. that aren't fulfilling their responsibilities i think um, you know consumers the public need more rights to hold programs accountable when the government doesn't step in to do it um, unfortunately it seems like we're headed in the opposite direction where individuals are losing rights to enforce more and more um, laws and protections um, and i think it's a, the wrong direction to go in um, but but it you know Back to your point, I think economic development is really critical um, as an approach to improving health and addressing issues in poverty. I mean, we've seen through research that moving um, a vulnerable, low-income family from a depressed, um, low-income community to an opportunity zone or a community where there are more economic opportunities and better schools has a dramatic impact on health and on opportunities long-term. So I think if, if we're looking at health, we, we need to be looking at economic development and opportunity as well. Yeah, and I think going to your economics point and kind of circling back to what we discussed earlier, the fact that dollars may be better spent elsewhere is easier and faster done on a federal level because the, and I know I can see you rolling your eyes, but the... <laughs> Federal government has this unique position where, yes, they are slow in some areas, but they are, they touch every single area of this country and they can roll things out and get feedback from every single different area of the country. And so if you are constantly monitoring and figuring this thing out, not just from one area of the city, but from the entire nation, there's a lot better chance that you're going to problem solve and you know, zap the things that are useless and make sure that money continues to go to things that are more economically sound in the long run. And I think while 
a private company may be in the position to do that. I mean, Amazon would be the perfect example of a company that really can touch all borders. <clears throat> the government is still in the better position just by way of the fact that they're really ingrained in everything right now and they have that continuous feedback loop, which is so important in making sure the money be- is being used for the right reasons. Yeah, I, I, see, I see your point on that. I mean, I'm always, again, hesitant to proclaim that the government is efficient or moves swiftly on certain things or that there isn't a lot of fraud, waste, and abuse, you know, throughout the, the system. I mean, the fact that government isn't efficient, that's certainly true. That's kind of like a truism of our day and age. But you could say the same thing about private companies. They just have different inefficiencies. Yeah, that's potentially true. I, I guess this may be outside the bounds of what you guys want to talk about, but uh, there, there's always the question of cost and how we could possibly fund a program like this, you know, especially when it one of the propositions that would underpin such a such a program would be essentially the elimination or severe reduction of the private market for insurance. I mean, that would zap away, what is it, 17, 18% of the U.S. economy. And um, so not only would you have that decreased corporate revenue that could be taxed, but you'd have to make up for it elsewhere, probably with private individuals or on other corporate sectors. I mean, what is the latest estimates on something like Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders' plan would be like $30 trillion over the next 10 years. So, I, I mean, where do you think that, how do, how do we persuade people that this is really for the good of every everyone? Are you talking about Medicare for all now? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think we need to factor into that how much we're all paying for our health care currently. Because I don't, my household's paying an awful lot for healthcare. If you consider like our employers' contributions and our contributions, and then all of the additional costs on top of it, people are paying. Even if you have insurance to your your work, like you're still paying a lot of money for health insurance. Even if you don't see that money coming out of your paycheck, it's actually coming out of your paycheck because you're making less if your employer is paying. $1,500 a month for you and your family to have health insurance. If they weren't, that money would more likely um, go towards, you know, either improving the agency, organization, university, or it would result in higher salaries. So I, I don't know if we've factored and calculated all of that um, or if people are thinking about all of those other costs and expenses. But, you know, I also think the way that we have our healthcare system set up right now has resulted in a really expensive healthcare system. So I think if we thought about reinvesting in things that actually improve health, and we had a healthier population, that we might actually, you know, save some money in the long run out of that amount. But um, ultimately, I think we just need to pay whatever it costs to take care of the folks in this country. I mean, we come up with a lot of money for a lot of other things. So I think we could come up with money for social services and health care for everyone. Yeah, and I mean, you have to think about the externalities that we have right now where we don't have adequate health care for everyone. I mean, I'm sure that fewer people would become, quote-unquote, public chargers. I know that's kind of a derogatory mm-hmm. term, but we could probably decrease funding in, in other sectors if, if we just had a generally healthier population. Anyway, uh, let, I want to look at the healthcare system as it exists today in incremental improvements that we can make. I'm a big fan of increased price transparency. What other things do you think that 
short of enacting, you know, very egalitarian or uh, difficult to achieve healthcare reform, such as Medicaid or Medicare for all. What are the ways in which we can improve the healthcare system as it exists today? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, one relates directly to what we do, which is, um, and I think many medical schools are already doing that, but we need to change the way we think about healthcare and what it is and what it covers. And healthcare providers need to be more aware of all of the different factors that impact health, like the social determinants of health, and need to become more familiar and comfortable helping patients with those issues. So we know from research that doctors do not feel equipped to address social determinants of health, and that for that reason, they don't even ask about mm-hmm. those kinds of problems and issues because they don't know what to do about it. So, you know, part of, part of the solution, I think, is educating more and more providers on, on how those social factors impact health and what to do about it. And so medical legal partnerships do that, um, and more and more medical schools are doing that and trying to transition the way they look at health. And federally qualified health centers like our partner, Erie Family Health Center, really focus on that because they serve a very vulnerable population. So I think, you know, we use health care solutions to problems that aren't really related to, like, traditional health care. Like, mm-hmm. you can't fix it with a shot, a pill, mm-hmm. physical therapy, surgery. Etc. So I think we need to, as a healthcare system, be more aware of the root causes and have better um, systems. And healthcare providers need to be better equipped to recommend those other solutions. Um, I think that's that's part of it. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, and Kara and I discussed this a little bit the other day. But I'd actually be a proponent of something like subsidies to incentivize more people to go into social work or to cover the cost mm-hmm. of you know, their education, maybe um, subsidize their income for some years, because I I think that that's really going to be a vital piece of it Uh going forward. You know, people that can really get into the homes and and take a look and figure out what the structural problems in the family unit are going on. I mean, I think that that's really would cure a lot of down the road costs. Uh You know, that would be a cost effective thing to do. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we need to be creative too about what we invest in. Like I know that some you know, managed care plans um, have actually done really creative things and looked at these issues and um, looked at investing in things like rent. So, uh, you know, would subsidizing someone's rent for a year be more cost-effective than all of the hospitalizations related to asthma attacks, for example? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to think more broadly about, you know, there's been discussion about what, you know, Medicaid currently, and I more I know more about Medicaid because we do Medicaid advocacy, um, you know, it only covers medical services and care and equipment, but what if what the person really needs to be healthful, healthy is um, an, a, an apartment um, mm-hmm. or an air conditioner mm-hmm. in the summer or, you know, their utility bills paid so they can keep their medication in the fridge or so you can plug in your kid's nebulizer or whatever it is. Or money to buy better groceries so they're not <laughs> right. eating as bad. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I think problem. we need to be more creative um, about how we spend our money for purposes of improving health mm-hmm. so that it's spent in the most efficient and effective way. Sure. 
And I think it's worth it to point out that we do work with the School of Social Work and we are finding out kind of the ways to act in those places and those holes that aren't really being acted on currently to boost up healthcare as a whole because right now we're just acting in very isolated areas. But this really needs an interdisciplinary approach. I mean, part of it is that we've just managed to set up a system that has no good way of communicating with other parts of the system. Uh, there's a lot of regulatory loopholes that, in terms of sharing information that kind of, I think, impedes or um, slows, slows down the ability to act swiftly and effectively. <clears throat> so I'm mindful of the time. Uh, I, I have a few more questions, but I, I, I'd like to give you guys the opportunity to make the case to anybody who's listening about, you know, the importance of the Health Justice Project and ways they can get involved and, and how this experience has personally changed both of you. Yeah, so I can talk about that. Yeah, why so, don't you do that? I'm the Health Justice Project Fellow this year, and I was lucky enough to participate also last year in the project. And I think what really, I mean, not only do I have a lot of live client interaction experience, which is so, so important when you're getting out into the job force, but I have that sense of balance between serving my community and also learning the skills that will translate into making my salary later down the line. And I think law school is the time to get that experience and take the holistic approach and really do both. Because I think people can get trapped, especially now when everyone is trying to bulk up the resumes to get a job. You can get trapped in going into the private sector and just like working like a dog. And this is just as comprehensive of an opportunity, if not more so, more challenging. You get way more responsibility than you would elsewhere. And I feel like it's really challenged me to think about the upstream approach and combining policy and advocacy work and not thinking of them as separate career paths or anything like that. And you might learn app development. <laughs> and I might learn app development. Yeah. <laughs> Should you say something about why? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so actually, as part of my project for the fellowship, we're in the process, the early stages of the process of developing an HJP app, which we're hoping would serve not only to allow individuals and healthcare providers to input information about their problems and find a legal resource that will help, but also allow us to track that information so that we can identify hotspots in Chicago and really get into the upstream approach of, wow, this isn't just happening to like one of our clients. This is happening over and over in the same area. There must be a bigger problem, a bigger issue that's not being addressed. And so we're hopeful that this app will come into fruition and we'll see some results in the coming months and deadline. So I think, you know, I'll say that CARES experience kind of exemplifies um, the opportunities that we kind of provide and um, encourage. So, I mean, our clinic is an opportunity to learn about social determinants of health and how they relate to the law and what the legal solutions are and to learn about systems that impact people in poverty and to work within those systems. And it's also an opportunity to engage in lawyering 
So our students are responsible for their cases. They take primary responsibility. They do everything in their cases with our supervision. Myself and my colleague, Ronnie Hochbaum, who's our clinical teaching fellow, supervise students to make sure that we're zealously advocating for our clients and meeting deadlines and doing, and doing what needs to be done. But really, like the students are taking leadership on the cases and, and the growth that I see over the course of the semester under this model is that um, is pretty incredible. Usually by about halfway through the semester, our, our students are like lawyers doing the lawyering. And many need very little guidance by that point in the semester and they're honing their skills. Um, and we really push students not just to do the bare minimum, but to become excellent attorneys and thinkers. And I think that, you know, you've heard Kara talking about how she thinks about issues and analyzes cases. She has a holistic approach. She has an upstream approach. She's thinking about how an app will help our partners and our clients and connect folks to resources and issues. And, and we encourage that kind of creativity. Um, and I think you're a better lawyer if you're creative, not just in the um, public interest sector, in any sector, if you are approaching lawyering in a holistic way, in an upstream way, in a creative way. You, you will do a better job for your clients and you will impress your employers more and you will excel in your career. So I think, you know, I think these skills translate beyond just um, public interest law or um, the kind of work we do in our clinic. Um, I guess I also, you know, want to say, so the Health Justice Project is a clinic um, that's located within the Beasley Institute for Health Law and Policy. And, and there are a lot of students who come to Loyola for a very strong health law program and who are getting health law certificates. And, and what our clinic also offers to that program is a different perspective on the healthcare system, which we talked about a little bit earlier. But you know, a lot of health law is focused on you know, the, um, the healthcare systems, the hospitals, the monitoring, the rules, the compliance, the financing, the contracts, the acquisition of the doctors, malpractice. Like there's, there's a lot of um, health law that's related to how um, medical systems are set up and structured and liabilities. But what we, what we offer is a perspective of what these health systems offer or don't offer for patients and particularly what vulnerable patients experience in health systems and what they experience in life and in the world. And health systems need to know that so they can better address those issues and have a better system that's more efficient and effective for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. So it's a really critical piece of information for students who want to practice health law, I think, to see this other perspective to the healthcare industry, to patients who are vulnerable. Um, and then, you know, obviously we're, we, we do public interest and poverty law work, so we offer opportunities for students who are specifically interested in that work to jump right in and be engaged in it um, in law school. Well, I think that was a great note to end on. Ms. Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And Kara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. And for Dialogue De Novo, I'm Jake Rome, and we will be back next week. Bum, ba-dum.